welcome to the third session of the Rooted Course. And today we're going to be focusing on the person of Jesus. I want to start off with a quotation. A man named Glenn Scrivener wrote these words and they're, they're rather apt. This traveling preacher never graduated from the recognized academies, never accepted political office, never entered religious orders, never joined the military. He never founded a school, never fathered a dynasty, never wrote a book, never led an army, never had an ounce of earthly power. He was butchered as a blasphemer in his 30s. Yet today he commands more allegiance than any other human has or could. Billions call him Lord. Not bad for a kid born in a shed. So those are the words of Glenn Scrivener from his book, The Story of God, the World and You. I want to read now something from the Bible that the Apostle Paul wrote. And it's found in Philippians chapter 2. And let's just pick it up in, in verse 4. He says, Each of you, each of us, should look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now Paul goes into describing what Jesus' attitude was. And in verse 6, he says this, speaking of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So that lovely description of Jesus and his leaving heaven, his coming to earth, that was actually a hymn that the early church used to sing. And it's a lovely theological statement about Jesus covering his his pre-existence, covering his incarnation, which comes from the Latin word to become flesh. It covers his ministry here on earth, how he became a, a servant. It covers his death on the cross, which in theology we, we refer to as Jesus's humiliation. And it refers to Jesus' return to heaven and his exaltation and restoration to the Father's side. So that passage from Philippians chapter 2 is a, is a powerful theological statement about Jesus Christ. And so I believe it's fitting that it's how we start today's session. 
So the first part of our talk today, I want to focus on the humanity of Jesus Christ. And funnily enough, there was a time when people doubted the humanity of Jesus. He lived such an amazing life and people held Jesus in such high esteem that in the first century, many people struggled with the idea that Jesus was truly human. In our day and age, we, many people struggle with the idea of, well, was Jesus divine? But in the first century, they struggled with the opposite. They, they struggled, was Jesus really fully human? And the Bible explains to us about the humanity of Jesus. And the humanity of Jesus is very important for at least three reasons. Firstly, when we understand the humanity of Jesus, we, we understand how well Jesus can relate to us and understand us. So that's a, a powerful truth relating to his humanity. But from God's perspective, the fact that Jesus became fully human at a point in time meant that he could obey God's law for us and he could also die as our substitute. Hebrews 4 picks up on, on the theme of Jesus being able to identify with us because of his full and complete humanity. And even in Ephesians 4 and verse 15, we read these great words. The writer of Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So this is a, a great truth to take to heart, that Jesus' humanity means that we have a high priest in heaven who is, who is able to sympathize with us, empathize with us, who understands our humanity. Let me take you through some of, the, some of the indicators of Jesus' full humanity. Firstly, Jesus' birth. Uh, it wasn't, his, his conception was miraculous, the Bible teaches us, but not his birth. Um, I'm sure Mary went through labor like, like every woman goes through labor. There was nothing unusual about Jesus' birth. I'm sure he, he cried as a baby. I'm sure there were times where he screamed when he was unhappy. But his birth was, was completely normal. He grew up normally, and we know that from Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, where a description is of Jesus, how he grew up in favor with God and, and with, with humankind, with society. Jesus appeared like a very normal person. You would think, though, if you had a child that never sinned, that you would think they were pretty special. But Jesus, in, in, in every respect, was like any other child. 
Hence, the, when he started his ministry, well, people would say, well, you know, who's this guy? This, this is just Jesus who used to kick a ball down the road. Um, we know this Jesus guy. He can't be some fancy prophet. I mean, we saw him, uh, you know, running about in, in his shorts. There's this very interesting verse, thirdly, about how Jesus had to learn obedience through what he suffered. Now, this is a very interesting verse, so we do need to read it. It's Hebrews 5, and I'm going to pick up the reading from verse 7. So it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because he's because of his reverent submission. So this isn't just talking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's talking about during the days of Jesus' life. And he had a prayer life where he would cry out to God, where he would shed tears. In other words, this is not a picture of a, a perfect, magical kind of relationship with God. Jesus struggled even in his relationship with God. And he was heard because of his, his worshipful attitude, his reverential submission. And then in Hebrews 5 verse 8 it says this, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So this verse tells us many things. It tells us that Jesus did suffer in his life. It also tells us that Jesus had to learn obedience. So Jesus also started off as a baby knowing nothing about God. And he had to learn about God. And we see him learning when he goes into the temple. And he's studying the scriptures as a 12-year-old and interacting with the teachers of the law. So Jesus had to learn, like we all do, about God. He didn't come into this world with everything, all the knowledge of God fully downloaded into his brain. He also had to learn character, learn self-control, learn patience, learn to be kind to people when they weren't being kind to him. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So let's just stop and ask ourselves, what's this about? What does it mean once made perfect? Is this verse implying that Jesus was imperfect and that he had to learn obedience because he had been disobedient? No, it's not saying that at all. He learned obedience. In other words, he learned how to conform his life to what God wanted to, to be. That doesn't mean he had been sinning and then stopped sinning. Rather, he was living his life in a particular way, still not sinning. But then he learned obedience and he conformed his life through struggles. And it wasn't easy to what God wanted his life to be. And when it says here that, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. We're not to read that, that there was a time when he wasn't perfect. The Greek word there for perfect is the word telos. 
And it's the word that describes something reaching its goal, something becoming complete and ready. And so it is better, although it is the word perfect, the, the gist of the word, the, the nuance of the word, the meaning is that it means he learned obedience through God shaping his life, even through suffering, even through his prayer life of tears and cries. God shaped Jesus to the point that he, be, he reached the telos, he reached the goal, he became perfect. He was, he was at that place in his character and development where he could be the Savior on the cross. So Jesus had to learn obedience and his character developed over time as he came from a baby knowing nothing, not even that one plus one equals two. Jesus knew nothing and over time he had to grow in his understanding of the world, in his interactions with people, how that should be conducted. And he had to grow in his understanding of God and his knowledge of God. Fourthly, we see too that Jesus had many physical limitations and this too points to his humanity. And if you look at the notes, and I hope you've downloaded the notes, they're in the link. You may want to open another browser uh, or even print the notes out. But if you look at the notes, all these scriptures are there. But we know that Jesus experienced our humanity because he experienced hunger. We read that in Matthew 4. He experienced thirst on the cross. He experienced fatigue. Remember just before he met the Samaritan woman, we're told that Jesus was tired from his journey. And so he sat down by the well. Jesus also experienced all the emotions that we do as, as people. When his good friend Lazarus died, we read about how Jesus was deeply moved and how he wept. And again, the, the Greek is explicit that it was almost a wailing coming from Jesus. He was, he was deeply moved by Lazarus's death. We read that Jesus experienced compassion for people. Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. There were times when Jesus experienced great joy, and the, the Bible tells us that. For example, in John 15, there were times where Jesus got really angry. We know about how he, how he made a weapon and drove the people out of the temple courts that had used the court of the Gentiles, which was their prayer area, as an area for commerce. And Jesus says, look, uh, get out of here because this temple is to be a, a house of prayer for all nations. And Jesus became angry. And we, we read about his, angry, his anger after healing a, healing a man in, in Mark 3. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. So Jesus is just like us in all these respects. He got tired. He got hungry. He had to develop character. He experienced joy and anger and frustration. 
all of these emotions point to the full humanity of Jesus. He also became indignant. Remember when the disciples were keeping the little children from coming to Jesus? When mothers wanted to bring their children, he became indignant. Jesus also felt love for people. John is described in John 13 as being the disciple that Jesus loved. So Jesus, we see his humanity on every page of the gospel. Jesus also needed company. Remember when, the, when he went into the garden of Gethsemane, he said, Come, my friends, I need you by my side. Come and, and pray with me. I just need you to be with me at this critical point in my life. Jesus needed friends. And we know how he used to hang around at Mary and Martha's. And, and yeah, Jesus was a normal man, just like you and like me. And also on the cross, Jesus experienced abandonment. As he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then if we think of some of Jesus' life experiences, we have already read from Hebrews chapter 4, where we're told that Jesus experienced temptation. Temptations to a degree that we will never experience them. In, in the desert, after his baptism, he was fasting for 40 days and the devil came to him and he was tempted in in a powerful fashion so the temptations Jesus faced were far worse than the temptations we face if, he, if Hebrews 4:15 says he was tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin Invariably, someone asks the question, well, how can Jesus have been tempted just like we are tempted if he didn't have a sinful nature? And that is a good question. And it is one I've pondered a lot. But he did have a, a human nature. Jesus, Jesus still felt the emotions and the desires that any human being feels. The, the, the desire to get back at injustice, indignation, anger. So Jesus, even though he didn't have a sinful nature, he still had desires and could still be tempted uh, in, in accordance with his fully human desires. But it is a, a difficult question to answer. So Jesus experienced temptation just like we do. He also had limited knowledge. I've already touched on this. Jesus didn't know everything. In Mark 9 and verse 21, he has to say to a woman who brings a son for, for healing, he says, well, how long has your, your child been like this? Jesus didn't just go around knowing everything about everyone all the time. Although he did have a great sense of discernment and he could tell what was in the heart of a, a person. Jesus was also fully reliant on God for guidance. Like I said, he had to seek God. And we saw that earlier reference to his prayer life. But Luke 6 verse 12, before he chooses the disciples, he spends all night in prayer. Asking God, should it be this one, that, Peter, James, John? 
Jesus had to seek God for guidance. He didn't just know everything automatically. He was fully human and had to relate to God like we do. Then there are elsewhere in the Bible theological statements about Jesus. And, and previously in a rooted session we looked at Isaiah 53 where we read that there was nothing in his appearance that should make us desire him. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And this also points to the, the full humanity of Jesus. He didn't walk six inches above the ground. Jesus was fully human in, in how he conducted himself in all respects. Acts 2 verse 22 says this, Men of Israel, this is Peter's sermon on Pentecost, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. You see how in Peter's sermon he stresses the humanity of Jesus. He was a man accredited by God. This man was handed over to you. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 also says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. And of course, in John's prologue to his gospel is this beautiful statement, John 1 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh. It's really speaking of our physical humanity. The the invisible God, the Logos who abided in heaven, he became flesh. He became human and, and dwelt among us, John tells us. So as I sum up now the humanity of Christ, these are some reasons once again why the hum full humanity of Christ is so important in Christian theology. Number one, the fact that Jesus became fully human affirms human dignity. It, it's a testimony to, to the beauty and the marvel of the human being. Secondly, because Jesus was fully human, he really is an example for us. He's not some, some God that we can't relate to. He didn't set an example that we can't follow. Jesus' humanity also affirms the goodness of human emotion. It's not a sin to be angry, to be indignant, to be cross about injustice. 
to be disappointed. Some of these emotions we feel in life, we, we feel, well, it's bad to feel that way. No, not if there are good reasons to feel that way. Jesus experienced those emotions. I believe he even you know, got very, very angry when he cleansed the temple. There's a time to get very, very angry. And Jesus' life shows us that those human emotions are not wrong, are not bad. We also know that we have a, a Savior who can, who can sympathize and empathize with our struggles. When we go to God in prayer and we say, Lord, I'm struggling with this or with that. Jesus is there and he knows what it feels like. And of course, because of his humanity, he could give his perfect life in exchange for ours. He could fulfill God's holy laws on our behalf. Just before I wrap up this first section on the humanity of Christ, in the next section right now, we're going to look at his divinity, why we believe in Christ's full deity. But there were two heresies in the first century relating to the humanity of Christ. And the first was docetism. Docetism. And this was a, a denial of Christ's full humanity. These were the people that said, no, Jesus only appeared to be fully human, but he wasn't really. And the church had to deal with those people and say, no, that's not right. It's not that Jesus just appeared human, but he wasn't really. He really was fully human. And there was another heresy to Apollinarianism. And this is the idea that Jesus was human, but not fully human. So rather complicated. If you're interested, you can, you can Google that and find out more about that. But let's consider now what the Bible teaches about the divinity of Christ. We've looked at his humanity and why we believe in the humanity of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to look at why we believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. Why do we believe in the divinity of Jesus? The first passage we're going to look at is John chapter 1, and it's a very important passage in, in so many respects. It's probably the clearest passage in the New Testament that teaches us about the nature of Jesus. John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So here in John chapter 1 and verse 1, as he starts his gospel, there's almost an echo of the beginning of the Old Testament, which begins with the words, in beginning. Here in John's gospel, he uses that same term, in beginning, was the word. And the Greek word for word is the word logos, logos. And the Greeks had an understanding of what the Logos was. It was a term they used, and it was the, the, principle, the principle of rationality. That which held the universe together was the Logos in their thinking. 
And so the Apostle John, even though he's a Hebrew, he takes that Greek concept and he applies it to Jesus and says that's a great concept, term to use to to speak about what Jesus was like before he came to earth. So he writes, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Greeks would be nodding their head, yes, uh, the Logos has always been there, holding everything together. And he says, and the Logos was with God. And then he would have surprised them by saying, and the Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then if we jump to verse 14 of John 1, we read these words. The Logos, this this person who was there from the beginning, who was with God, the Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Greeks also had a very negative view of the flesh. They didn't think the flesh was very important, which is why they believed you could you could sin with your body and it didn't make a difference because the only thing that mattered was your spirit. So the flesh had a kind of a uh, was viewed negatively in, in Greek thought, but the Hebrew people honored the flesh, the body, because they believed that God had created the body and that we aren't spirits, but we have bodies and our bodies are essential to who we are. That's why when we are after death, we're going to have resurrection bodies because human beings are meant to have bodies, physical bodies. We're going to have a glorified body like Jesus' body after the resurrection. So John tells us in verse 14, the Logos, the Word, Jesus, he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So as you can see, there's there's an enormous amount to unpack in, in these verses. But here we're being taught about the incarnation. Jesus Christ didn't come into existence when he was conceived. No, he... From all eternity, he had been in heaven with the Father. The incarnation is about Jesus becoming flesh. And then we know him by the name Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. But that's not when Jesus started to exist. He was in heaven. He became flesh. And the reason Jesus can reveal God to us is because he was at the Father's side. But more about that later. Hebrews chapter 1 is another great verse that affirms the deity of Christ. Hebrews 1 verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. 
Those are powerful words spoken about Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And then we started today's rooted session reading from Philippians chapter 3, that wonderful hymn that describes Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. So here in verse 6, we were told that Jesus, before he came to earth, was in very nature God. And, and when asked by the Father to come to earth, because the Father sent Jesus to earth, when commissioned by the Father to, to come to earth and to become human, we read that he did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped. And that means in the Greek something to be hung on to, something not to let go of. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be, to be grasped. It doesn't mean something to be grasped at, to, to try and to obtain equality with God. That's not the grasping with the gasping. It's, it means he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, held on to. But he made himself nothing. And here the Greek word is, the root of the Greek word of making himself nothing is, is kenosis. And it means he emptied himself. He emptied himself. That's how Jesus came from his position in glory at the Father's right hand and became flesh. He laid aside his majesty. He, he temporarily set aside some of his divine abilities. He didn't lose them, but he set them aside. He emptied himself in order to be able to become a human being. And like all of us would have started off as, as cells dividing, something smaller than a the point of a needle. Jesus emptied himself. He laid aside his, his glory. He emptied himself in order to become a man. Let's jump now to John chapter 10, which is another great verse about the humanity, sorry, not the humanity, about the divinity of Christ. In, in John chapter 10, in verse 30, Jesus really upsets people. He says to the Jews, I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Why did the Jews want to stone Jesus? Because he'd, he'd been claiming that I and the Father are one. To say that you're one with God was a, was a profound statement of blasphemy, which is why the Jews pick up stones to stone Jesus. 
And then in verse 33, the Jews say why they're stoning Jesus. They understood fully what he was saying. And they say, we're stoning you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So the people listening to, to Jesus, the trained theologians of the day, the Jews, the Pharisees rather, they understood that Jesus was making a claim to divinity. But here are some other reasons for our belief in the divinity of Jesus. Well, the New Testament refers to Jesus as God. It uses the word theos and not just the word Lord or kurios. It uses the word theos to describe Jesus. And this is all in the context of strict monotheism. Titus 2 verse 13 refers to Jesus and his coming as we're waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. So in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as God. Uh, there's another great verse in, in Romans 9. Uh, there in Romans 9, Paul is writing about the Jewish people, Israel, and all the blessings that they have. And he says, theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory. Theirs is the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. He's saying these are all the things that took place within Israel, all these amazing blessings. And he says, and this is the part that's important, verse 5, And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. So there's another direct reference to Jesus Christ, who is God Overall, we also know that Jesus was eternally pre existent. I've mentioned that already. Omnipresent in the Great Commission, he says to his followers, Go out and, and I'm going to be with you always. The Bible tells us that Jesus is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Hebrews 1 verse 3, it is Jesus, this radiance of God's glory, this one who is the exact representation of God. He is the one who is sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's how much power Jesus has. He's immutable. That means he doesn't change. The, the New Testament also teaches us that Jesus is the one who created the universe, and there are a number of verses about, like that, that through him, God made everything. One, one, one point that really speaks to the divinity of Jesus, it's point eight in the notes, and it's his authority to forgive sins. It's his authority to forgive sins. And just think about this a moment. In Mark 2, there are these four people that bring their injured friend, a paralyzed friend to Jesus. 
and they lower him through the roof. And Jesus says to this paralyzed man, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And we read now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's a, that's, a very, that's a very good statement. Who can forgive sins but God alone? If somebody sins against God, how can some other person who isn't God, who isn't the one who was sinned against, forgive them for that? The fact that Jesus takes it upon himself to be able to forgive people the sins they've committed against God shows us that Jesus considers himself to have the capacity to be able to do that. It's testimony to his divinity. Also, Jesus accepted worship. Even in the boat, in in Mark 14, it says, those who were with him in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. So again, in a, in a strictly monotheistic culture where, where the worship of people was never allowed, Jesus receives worship and it's because of his divinity. But one of the greatest references to Christ's divinity in the New Testament is, is found in John chapter 8, when he speaks the unique forbidden name of God. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you will know that the Jews respected God's name so much that they wouldn't say it. That's why the Gospel of Matthew, which was a gospel written for Jewish people, doesn't talk about the kingdom of God. Because out of respect for God, you wouldn't say the word God. Out of respect for God. So they talk about the kingdom of heaven. It's just a a roundabout way of of speaking about the kingdom of God. So the, the Jewish people respected God so much, they wouldn't pronounce the divine name. And remember when Moses has the burning bush experience and he says to God, who shall I say has sent me? On what authority do I have to to tell Pharaoh to let the people go? And, And God says, I am who I am. And that's where we get our phrase, our term Yahweh from. It's from that also what we refer to as the tetragrammaton. It's, it's the divine name of God, which means I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I simply am. That's God's name. And that's the background to what happens in, in John chapter 8. And you might not pick, pick it up, so I'll explain it to you, because unless you read this in the original Greek, you're not going to pick this up because it's hidden in in the English translation. Not intentionally, but it just doesn't come out. 
So in John 8, verse 58, Jesus is chatting away, debating with the Pharisees. And they're giving Jesus a hard time as usual. And he says to them, I tell you the truth. Again, it's that, as the King James used to say, verily, verily, I say unto you. It's Jesus about to say something super important. He often uses that phrase, I tell you the truth. Jesus answered, and here it is, before Abraham was born, I am. So he's saying a number of things here. He's telling them that Abraham, even though he lived hundreds, actually thousands of years prior to this conversation, Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. Here Jesus is pointing to his, his pre-existence prior to his, his life, his existence prior to the incarnation. But Jesus is also referencing the divine name of God here. When he says, before Abraham was born, I am. Because in the Greek language that the New Testament was written, the phrase used here is ego Amy. Um, how can I explain this? In, in the Greek language, if I'm going to say, I kick the ball, I can simply use the word kick because I can build into the word kick an indication of the gender and how many people are doing the kicking and really who is doing the kicking. So by using one word, I can say I kick the ball. You can also do that in the Greek language and, and simply by saying Amy, you can say I am. But here how it's constructed, the way Jesus says, he says ego Amy. In other words, he's not just saying it very simply how he could say it with the word Amy in the Greek, but he says ego, and we all know where one's ego comes from. It, it comes from this, this Greek word for the self. So here Jesus, in the way this sentence is constructed, he is definitely referencing the divine name of God. So with that in mind, let me read it again. This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. And now we can see why they want to stone him to death for saying this. He says, I tell you the truth. In other words, here comes a big statement from me. Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. Why did they want to kill Jesus at that point? Because they fully understood that he was identifying himself with Yahweh, with the one who called himself, I am who I am. And Jesus is saying long before Abraham was born, that's me. I and the Father are one. There are some other references to Christ's divinity, and you can, you can pick those up in the notes. Uh, it may worth me mentioning John 14, verse 9, where Jesus comes out with this statement, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. 
because Jesus is the, the exact representation of God the Father. Other indications of Jesus' divinity would be his ability to perform miracles, which he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus who sends out the Holy Spirit and Jesus who gives eternal life. Jesus knows the future. He would uh, speak a lot about uh, the kingdom of God. Another uh, very interesting reference to Christ's divinity. It's point 18 in the notes. Is Jesus' willingness to change the law of God. And we see this in Luke chapter 6. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and the disciples were obviously hungry. So they picked some heads of grain and rubbed them in their hands to eat the kernels. And the Pharisees are saying, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? They were, they were sifting grain on the Sabbath day, which was regarded as, as work in keeping with God's law. And then Jesus talks about how the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus basically makes the point that sure, there are all these rules in the Old Testament that God gave, but that he is Jesus, is the Lord of the Sabbath, and thus all of those rules that apply to God and that God had made, not apply to God, not that he's under the Sabbath law, but those rules of the Sabbath about God, Jesus is saying, well, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I can actually overrule that and do what I want on the Sabbath because I'm Lord of the Sabbath. So we see Jesus having the freedom to change the laws of the Old Testament. Lord of the Sabbath in that respect. So what is the significance of Jesus? Well, it means that we are to worship Jesus. It means that we can really know what God is like because Jesus revealed God to us. Remember, we he was at the Father's side, John says, and He's, he's come down to earth and we've seen what, what God is like because of Jesus. And because of his divinity, he can save us because he offered a life to God that was of infinite worth. A human life, yes, but also a, a life that was divine. And there are two heresies that relate to the divinity of Christ. And I just want to briefly mention them because they do crop up again and again in our, in our day, even though they, they first appeared in the first century. And the, and the first heresy is Ebionism. And this is the idea that Jesus was just a normal guy, a, a normal man with a normal baby born to Mary and Joseph. And that the Christ's, Spirit came upon him at his baptism, and that that somehow turned Jesus 
into the Son of God. It's sometimes referred to as the sort of adoption theory that Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph, but then when God saw what a great guy he was, he kind of filled him with his spirit and turned him into the Son of God. And the early Christians had to say, no, that's not what we believe about Jesus. And then there was an Arianism. And this is the idea that Jesus was not self-existent, but a created being. And the Jehovah's Witnesses today teach this view that Jesus was not fully God, but rather he was a God. And of course, this doesn't fit with what the Bible teaches about monotheism. In many places, the Old Testament teaches us that we must have, that there are no gods. There is only one God and that only that God shall be worshipped. And so Arian came up with, Arius rather, came up with this view that Jesus wasn't fully God all the time, but rather he's kind of a little God, he, kind of a God, but, but not, not pre-existent. That Christians believe in the pre-existence of Jesus. Let me end the session about the, the person of Jesus by reading a, a short extract from the Nicene Creed which was probably written about 325 AD. And it talks about Jesus and his nature. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. In other words, the begotten describes Jesus' relationship to the Father. It doesn't mean there was a time when Jesus came into existence. Today we've been through a bit of a journey through the Bible, looking at what the Bible teaches about the humanity of Jesus. He was fully human. He wasn't just pretending to be human. He had a human nature just like ours. And then we've looked at those scriptures that speak about the divinity of Jesus, how it was Jesus that lived prior to his incarnation, before Abraham was, he is. The Jesus who used the divine name, I, I am. And this is the Jesus that we worship. Thank you for joining today. And next week we'll be starting to look at the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? And what does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? And I hope you will be back.